His name is Heston Blumenthal. He is one of the most inquisitive and creative chefs on the planet, with a knowledge of food quite unlike anyone else. And his restaurant, The Fat Duck, is 25 years old, believe it or not. And to celebrate, we're doing a special series of podcasts where Heston's revealing the secrets and stories behind some of the classic dishes of the duck and also some of the new creations being revealed as part of this anniversary. Last week, Heston took us inside the special appetizers of the Fat Duck menus, and now we're going even deeper inside the menu. Hello, Heston. Good to see you. I enjoyed our appetizers last week. Hello, Jay. Yeah, me too, actually. In fact, um, it's a nice... I'm quite excited about, about going through this process, going through this menu, because we touched on the those little flurry of four little beautiful dishes that were designed to whet the appetite and and sort of stimulate the taste buds uh and for the and get your mouth watering so mouth watering appetite wetting flurry of four little beauties and so now just to put you in context your mouth is is has kind of just woken up it's gone it's like gone to a really wonderful gym and you're just you know, your appetite's been stimulated, so you're getting really excited um, about what's to come. So we're carrying mm. that excitement through to the next dish. Lovely. And also joining us for our dining experience, as always, is our fat duck producer James. Hello, James. You looking forward to our next course? Hello, guys. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. After that uh, little little summary from Hester, now I can't wait. Heston, so where are we going next? What is our next dish on this celebratory menu? Well, we're sort of going into the woods. It's a wonderful woodland scene where you'll find um, quails, for example, and various other birds. Uh, the undergrowth, as David Bellamy, mostly probably a lot of people listening won't remember who David Bellamy is or was, but the in, in the undergrowth and oak trees and moss and wonderful that sort of dewy damp woodland scene and you can smell it slightly earthy slightly floral in fact oak moss you've got oak resin oak is very vanillary um which we'll come on to later just park that thought oak and vanilla when you toast oak like toasted oak barrels you have a compound called vanillin um, and that's the same compound that gives vanilla its flavour. And that's in wine casks. So Chardonnay that tastes vanillary comes from toasting the oak barrels. So that's your toasted oak and your oak with vanillin. But you've also got your oak moss. You know the really soft, kind of hairy, fluffy stuff that grows around pieces of wood and trees. That's oak moss. And the perfume industry, it's one of the really precious and valuable ingredients in the making of perfume and aftershave it helps fix other flavors to the skin but as well as this soft earthiness it has a very delicate it doesn't, it's not necessarily going to sound really appetizing but funkiness that we human beings love but it's also slightly perfumed so coming back to our little adventure with our taking our newly stimulated mouth watering appetite wetting um, or wetted mouth and excited body and mind we're going for a walk in the woods and the dish is called a quail jelly cream of longestine oak moss and brackets tasting a smell and then underneath a homage to alan chapelle and i know you're going to ask me all of those elements are going to need explaining 
And they will they be. They are. And it's also, I think, one of the most spectacular of the dishes you get at the Fat Duck. Do you want to just, before we deconstruct it into its parts... I know, do you I know ex- what you're going to say, and it's exactly what <laughs> I was going to suggest. You were going to ask me to set the scene. Set the scene. So imagine you're a diner. You're sitting at the table, and we've got... Uh, we have been playing around with with, uh, with the lighting. So we've got lights that uh, you can change colour and tone. So we sort of just slightly dim and tweak the lighting to s- set the stage. You imagine you're you're going for a, you're this wonderful walk in the woods, and in the middle of the table is a centerpiece, which is basically a woodland scene, some trees and some moss. Um, it's been handmade by a local model maker, and it's set on a base. And there's a glass tube casing to it so that goes on the table and you look at that and you so you can see you can see the scene and then in front of you a little wooden block made from oak gets placed in front of you with a plastic container containing a film or a strip i don't mean a movie but like a little a a, a strip now you remember those Listerine and other companies made the mouth that they're, they're sort of like mouth cleansing strips. Yeah, I remember them. They were sort of a, a substitute for chewing of, gum, weren't it, they? Exactly. So imagine that strip, but there's no menthol in sight. That strip is oak moss and oak resin extract. So now you've got your little container and it's got a little sticker on it saying uh, Fat Duck Films. <laughs> <laughs> and you're watching the woodland scene in front of you in the middle of the table. And then you pick up the film. It's about, I don't know, uh, an inch and an inch and a half by about half of that in width. And you just put it on your tongue. So just place it on your tongue. And it's basically gelatin with the essential oil and the extract of the oak. So now you're putting, you're basically putting the smell of the forest into your mouth. Which is a we will come on to explaining why this is this will this will test my level of uh, expertise in terms of clarifying um, what I'm explaining. So you're putting the most fantastic illustration of you though and Fat Duck World and your mind that this is a dish. This is brilliant. Go on, keep going. Yeah, so it's a bit Alice in Wonderland, this. isn't it? So you're putting the you put the film on your tongue and you just leave it on your tongue and the heat of your mouth will melt will melt the gelatin as that melts. The mouth becomes infused with the aroma of the woodland scene you're looking at. So the oak moss and the oak resin. Then, while that's gently melting in your mouth on your tongue, one of the front of house team pours, imagine a sort of metal, sort of slightly coffee-like, almost Arabic-like teapot with a spout, long sort of S-shaped spout. And they pour onto the into the base of the woodland scene. So there's a black base, you've got the glass tube, that, and you'll see why you, we need the glass tube. They're pouring it onto, you can't see it, but there's dry ice in the base. So it's hot liquid, hot water with the essential oil, the same essential oil that's in the oak film that's melting on your tongue, poured onto the dry ice. And when you pour it on the dry ice, you get a load of vapor. It would bellow out over the table, but it's got the glass tube, so it fills the glass tube. So imagine now, the woodland scene has, you can't see anything because it's its a foggy woodland scene. 
So then the vapor then starts to bellow out of the glass tube. And because it's cold vapor, it falls down over the table and it's sort of draping. It's like a, it's like an aromatic clouded tablecloth. That just oh, you know, sometimes you see, you see clouds. It's like a B movie. It's like yeah. a B movie. One of those old, you know, those old horror films where they used to, the mist would go across the ground. Exactly. The or imagine that. Yeah, exact, exactly. And it falls over the gravestones. But like mountains, clouds can come over the top of mountains. You can have a blue sky and this cloud just hits the top of the mountain and then just falls over like a somewhere between draping a tablecloth over it or a, a waterfall of smell. So this bellows over the table. You can actually feel the cold because dry ice is sort of minus 80. Nowhere near as cold as nitrogen, but it's still cold. And with it comes the smell. So now you're connected, you're seeing the vapour. When you see, when you can see the vapour, like the cloud-like effect, somehow it connects you to the smell even more, because if you smell something but you can't see it, then, then th th there's less of an anchor. So now, as that smell as that smell comes across the table, while the film is melting in your mouth with the same smell in your mouth, it then reveals the woodland scene again. So, you know, we have this symbiotic relationship with trees where, where they take in sunlight, they pump out oxygen, we breathe in on oxygen, we breathe out CO2, they breathe out in CO2. So this that's called symbiosis. Uh, it's a bit like that. So we're breathing in the vapour from the trees and the smell while we're breathing out. So this have this connection with all of this. Meanwhile, while all of that's happening, um, then uh, actually before I get to the, the quail jelly itself, the reason why tasting a smell uh, is in brackets on that menu, because that's what you're doing. Just after I've finished setting the scene of the dish, we, I'm just telling you to so you can remind me we'll discuss tasting a smell and the difference between taste and smell because there is an important difference anyway cloud vapor mist smell strip melting sea woodland scene you've just fallen down your rabbit hole and then they place um, a little cup on a stand which has pea puree in the bottom of it it's cold then there's a really delicate jelly of quail um, infused with many things, but finish with uh, tarragon and chervil and parsley. So you get these sort of herbaceous top notes to it and then covered in a really delicate cream of langoustines, which is made from a langoustine stock and then reduced. And it's got loads of other things in it. You've got a lot of umami and this beautiful sort of slightly citrusy acidity in the cream. And there is a, a rocher, which is a posh word for a spoonful. It's, a, it's like an egg-shaped spoonful shape of chicken liver parfait, which is the, 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 the most sort of ethereal, silk-like textured parfait with an awful lot of gargantuan quantities of white pork, red pork, and brandy and Madeira reduced to almost nothing so there's no alcohol in sight but they're reduced to this super concentrated syrup and that's mixed with the with the parfait <clears throat> and then you've got tiny little cubes of turnip in there so you've got this delicate jelly with the cream of langoustine and the parfait of chicken livers then on the side of it there's a piece of toast and it's just toasted on one side but it's truffle and oak butter so we make a butter with loads of black truffles it's black now truffles grow under oak trees 
So that's the, the truffle and oat connection. And then on top of this piece of toast, there's a couple of half radishes with some chervil and some other bits and bobs. And so you've then, you've tasted the smell of the forest. And now then you start to eat with the toast and the jelly and the cream and the parfait. So there's the scene set, all in a nutshell. At Heston's podcast on Instagram, we'll put up some pictures so you can see it because it, it, when you see it, it joins together so beautifully and it does genuinely feel, why it's so arresting but feels so natural is you are in a forest scene and you're eating a, a forest is the best way, I, eating the floor of the forest, which sounds awful, but it's actually incredibly comforting and really magical because all those elements draw together and there's lots of greens and warm colours and dark colours and it just works and especially now yeah. as we're kind of turning towards autumn I think we all sort of start hankering after those those colours and feels anyway. It is um, genuinely food theatre, this one, on all yeah, levels. It hits I, you all senses. One of the things that intrigues me about this, about or intrigued me about this dish was an idea that I had that how come there are smells, so we mentioned oat moss and perfumes and aftershaves, for example, like, uh, Johnson, like baby talc. There are smells that which the baby i've said that because we'll come on to a dish later which is also tasting a smell which is the same uses a similar principle as this we have smells that transport us back to wonderful places to time and place a smell is the biggest trigger of memory of all of the senses followed by sound but smell is the biggest so smell can transport us to these wonderful moments and there are some incredible smells but we wouldn't eat them because they're not designed, they're, they're, they're not food safe. And we were, and, and so for example, you can smell this, they increasingly use things like cucumber and melon and vanilla and all sorts of wonderful food ingredients and apple and ginger and, and spices and cinnamon and, and you can go on and on. Thing, ingredients you use in cooking, but they use the similar molecules in perfume or aftershave, but you wouldn't want to spray a perfume or aftershave in your mouth. However, I love the fact that you can then use those smells and then do a food equivalent of the smell and put it in your mouth. So you sort of taste the smell. And the reason why a lot of people might not realise this listening, but it's a really important thing. Taste and smell are two completely, but completely different senses, yet totally interconnected, just like sight and sound so sight sound touch taste and smell are five principal senses so taste and smell are different so you think okay well <clears throat> all right how are they different most of us assume that when we eat something so we eat an apple where there's a texture and there's the temperature of the apple and there's it tastes of an apple now, the taste element, technically, is actually the sweetness, the acidity or sourness, the bitterness, the saltiness, or the umami. That's taste. Everything that, that it doesn't have a smell. There are no smells in, on the tongue. Then, as we eat the, the animal, as we eat the apple or anything, the aroma molecules go into our nose. And there's an area between the eyes and behind the bridge of the nose called... Um, called the olfactory epithelium and it's the only piece of the brain that's exposed and that's how we smell so we can smell through our mouth when we breathe in through our mouth and we smell breathing through our nose the most 3d smell is when you is when you breathe in and out <clears throat> it's not just sniffing that's partly why 
um, smell of vision didn't work in the cinema or scratch and sniff because you're, you're just using your nostrils. Whereas you can be in a room where you just sprayed something and talking and you'll get much more of a rounded smell because it's going in your mouth and out your nose and up your nose and out your mouth. Retro oh, that's and interesting. I didn't realise that. So, so that's... It's that, that circular... It's circular it, exactly. Almost. You need the circular breathing. And so there's a great way to test this. I've just mentioned an apple. If you eat an apple... But before you eat an apple, clench both your nostrils tightly and start crunching the apple. Don't let go of your nostrils. Um, you will perceive sourness or acidity. You'll perceive the sweetness from the apple. And you'll perceive some bitterness, especially if you crunch on the seeds. Um, and you'll probably perceive a little bit of salt. But you won't really get it as an apple. Now with the apple still in your mouth, let go of your nostrils and the aroma comes flooding through. So flavour is taste plus smell equals flavour. Jay, I've got an experiment for you. I've primed you. You don't exactly know what the experiment is. All I've primed you to do is bring a vanilla pod with you. And you've been a good boy. I have, actually. Yeah. I actually went and got one. I have one in front of me here. And it was quite hard to get out the thing. But I have a vanilla pod here, which I shall take out. So now, have a smell of the vanilla pod. Now, how would you describe that smell? If you could only use one word. One word. Simple. One simple word. Oh. The the word that most people use is sweet. They describe yeah. it as sweet. Yeah, there's now, a bit of licorice in there and sweetness. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Now, we, what we've just heard is sweet doesn't have a smell because it's a taste. Honey has a taste, has a smell. Uh, maple syrup, demerara sugar, caramel, all of these have smells, but they have aroma molecules in the mixture. But sweet, we're not talking about a an ingredient we're talking about a taste so there's receptors on the tongue for sweet so you're smelling sweet but you can't smell yeah. sweet because sweet doesn't have a smell it's a taste now have a chew of that vanilla pod you can spit it out after us but have a chew and tell me if there's anything sweet about that vanilla pod so you're now tasting the smell it smelt sweet now you're tasting it Oh god, that's not very really nice at all, is it? <laughs> no, no, that's, no. That's, no, that's horrible. <laughs> that is oh, it's really bad. It Sorry. keeps getting worse. Sorry, Jay. Oh, Would you say there's a drop of sweetness in there? No, in fact, it's 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 so strange because you've been so geared up because it does smell delightfully sweet, and and yeah. then and then it is the complete opposite of that. It's, it's like deeply bitter. unpleasant and bitter. Yeah. And the reason is that so that you can see that's your taste. So you, it smelt sweet. So this is the the fact that many people then don't, but they don't realise that, that 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 taste and smell are different. But it's a thing called learned association. So the reason vanilla pods smell sweet is that we grew up with vanilla in sweet things: ice cream, biscuits, yeah. milkshakes. It, it, it's 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 meant to be the most universe single most universally loved appreciated aroma or flavour. That exists I get that. on the when planet. When you smell it, when you smell it, it does. It's just lovely. It's it lovely. Is, it's remarkable how different it is to how it tastes, which is absolutely awful. Yes, but when you then infuse it into milk, and you put the seeds in the milk, and then you make the biscuits with it, you don't get any of that bitterness. You just chewed the whole vanilla pod. So you just see, you're sort of. It's quite similar to that. You're tasting a smell, but if you yeah. tasted the whole raw thing it would be bitter and unpleasant. So I really found this quite fascinating. How can we take smells that we adore, but 
kind of put them in our mouths as well in a pleasing way. So it sort of heightens the whole enjoyment of that process. And that's what I mean by tasting the smell. And I, there was a Congress, the world's most famous sort of gastronomic Congress. And the first big one was called Madrid Fusion, early 2000s. And my first presentation there, I did a presentation on, and, and I didn't realize, uh, no one had even thought about this. And I think probably everyone thought I was off Morocco, which wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> uh, I, I, I introduced the world to the fact that cooking and eating is a multi-sensory experience. As we're talking about now, you know, we're talking about already on the quail jelly, we've talked about sight and sound, sight and smell and taste, for example. Um, now, I, I was talking about that and then I talked about this concept of tasting a smell. So it's a bit like uh, another example would be some people can, can, you hear music, but people can see, they can, they can uh, feel music. So a, a track could, a musical note can sound sharp or a color. Actually, we call A sharp or B sharp in music. A color can be sharp as well as a knife. A smell can smell sharp. And these are, this is this wonderful um, area of when you start to play around with with bringing all the senses in, you start to create this more than some of its parts experience, which can, which can be fantastic for your imagination. And 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 so that was, um, yeah, that that was when that that whole thing of tasting and smell began. That was one of the one of the techniques, I suppose, over the last twenty five years. So. Coming back to the quail jelly, that's why it's called tasting a smell. Uh, we've we've set the scene for the woodlands, we've set the scene for the dry ice. Actually, there's another thing that that I dis discovered that was considered to be a little bit what's the word? Risque. Risque. Thank you, Jay. Risque at the time was the use of dry ice for releasing aroma. And you know, you can do this at home. The only downside with dry ice is that you need a minus eighty freezer. It melts really quickly. But if you can get it delivered in polystyrene boxes, companies deliver this. And you can have smoke machines for parties. That uses dry ice. But if you were to get these pellets, don't pick them up with your fingers because they're very cold. Just you know, use a spoon or something. If you put some dry ice in a bowl and then put your oranges, just some oranges, in the bowl. If they've got leaves on it, it looks even nicer. But put them on top of the dry ice so you can't see the dry ice. Then buy some orange oil which isn't that difficult to get, orange or orange and ginger or something. And then if you had a, let's say you had, you like chocolate and orange, you had a chocolate dessert. Let's even it was a chocolate ice cream. At the table, you then get some hot water and pour in your orange oil into your hot water and then pour water the oranges and then the vapour will bellow out over the table while you're eating your chocolate, um, your chocolate ice cream or chocolate mousse and you get this wonderful chocolate and orange aroma plus you get a, it looks great everyone loves it that's very cool and it's very easy to do at home but it is one of those things you could do at a dinner party or a party and just show stop exactly that's the smell side of it before we move over into the quail side of the course i just wanted to have a quick word with everyone listening about some uh, really cool connection we have here the reason that we are able to do these podcasts for free and put them out there is we have some great company companies that back us and uh, one of them is called the great courses plus and we really wanted to talk to you about this because we uh, were genuinely behind this have you ever wondered how ancient humans survived pandemics or how the internet came to be well now you don't need to wonder you can learn about it and so much more with the great courses 
plus there's loads of great topics on there. i mean just hundreds of different topics on there and they're all presented by professors and professionals and, and the very most learned scholars in their areas so you can check out a myriad of lectures and you can binge watch them in one go or you can watch them on your app whenever you want um james you've been uh, there's loads of food ones out there you've uh, been watching a variety I've been enjoying actually a few of them actually. I've been enjoying recently this week the, the culture. It's called, I think it's called a cultural culinary history of food, and that was presented by uh, Professor Ken Albala from the University of the Pacific. Uh, and really, it's a it's a it's a huge number of episodes. It's like thirty six episodes tracing the the growth of food culture across the globe and through history. So you can start at the very beginning of the hunter gatherer communities of, of of the planet all the way through to fancy French cuisine into the you know beginnings of of what Hester's talking about at the very end and, and, and the emergence of this this new understanding of the food science and the, the multi-sensory elements here so you know it's it's a really fascinating series so you know that's one particular one but there's, there's I mean there's so many to choose from and, and you can do, do courses on wine you can just do simple things with recipes and cooking techniques but also beyond food there's, there's so many other things to, to indulge in. So we think this is a really we genuinely think this is a really cool thing and what we're suggesting is um, you can go and log on and get involved this is just one there's thousands of lectures available uh, and as james says they cover everything from history to cooking to biology to business and so much more they're all presented by respected experts and easy to watch and listen to at any time from anywhere in the world on the great courses plus app now the brilliant thing about this is you can go and do this for free and we really are genuinely recommended go recommending you do this go out there and do this join us and sign up for the great courses plus today and right now they have a limited time offer for our listeners for an entire month for free that's access to any and all of these courses for the next month completely free um, all you have to do is go to the great courses forward slash heston that's the great courses plus.com slash heston and then you'll get a month of these courses for free and you can delve in as much as you want and binge on as many of these really really fascinating areas as you like uh, completely for free so we suggest you do that right back on with our dining experience heston we've had we've eaten the incredible smell of of the forest now the quail jelly yes <clears throat> so this is sort of the dish didn't begin with the notion of tasting a smell Actually, my inspiration from the dish came several years before that. And there was a great, one of the great chefs of France called Alain Chappelle. He had a restaurant outside of Lyon. He was probably, um, in those days, there were, I think, 14 or 15 restaurants in France with three Michelin stars. And he was possibly the least known of the great chefs, but possibly the one that influenced the other great chefs the most. And he had a dish which was a jelly of pigeon with quail. And there were, I think he might have put some red mullet with it. And it had various iterations to the dish. And I ate, ate there several times. And each time there's something I ate was a revelation to me. So I he was one of the, I said, if I, if I had a, a, you know, an, an inspirational chef, then Alan Chappelle would have been one of them. And when I started playing around with the dish, one of the ingredients that he, he actually listed on, he said, jelly, jelly of pigeon uh, with crayfish, I think it was with crayfish, uh, fennel and star anise. When I started playing around with the, the stock, the base for the consomme and the star anise, I noticed that it seemed to accentuate 
the meaty flavour of the dish. And I started to look into a little bit more and try and find out different cultures that were, that were doing this. And then one thing popped up, which then became quite obvious after I discovered it, Chinese cooking. So five spice. The French use something called quatre pices, which is four spice, which is cinnamon, allspice, clove and nutmeg or mace. Mace is the little, you know, have you ever seen a nutmeg with it's got this sort of spider's web coating around it? That mm. is, it's the little, the thing, it's the coating of the nutmeg, mace, those four spices. Oh, wow. Now, Chinese five spice uses ginger and cinnamon in its mix. And it's, it's, it's quite a big difference, but it's got star anise in. And if you think about spare ribs, the spice mix of spare ribs has star anise. So I think, hang on a second, maybe the Chinese have known about this for thousands of years. <laughs> So I'm just standing on the shoulders. They normally have, haven't they? Yeah. Normally have. It's normally been done before. Standing on the shoulders of giants. And I realise it's a fantastic technique for anyone interested in making sort of stocks and meat stews, even down to a, a bolognese. If you, when you um, normally make a, a stew or a meat dish or a stock, you brown your onions and then you brown, you brown the meat and then mix them. If when you brown the, your onions, you put some star anise, let's say half a star anise for one medium onion, then you add your brown meat. What happens is somehow it's to do with the, the interaction of some of the sulfur compounds in the meat and in the onions. And, and with the star anise, it's like a flavor enhancer, a booster for the meaty notes. It's like turning the volume up. Hmm. And, and if you use too much star anise, it will dominate the flavor. But if you get the level right, it's fantastic technique really makes a difference. So we were playing around with a stock for the consomme. And I discovered this, this wonderful, this wonderful technique of star anise and onions, basically. So we make the stock and then we use more onion and more veg and more meat and make a set and make another stock. But instead of adding water to the second lot of meat, we add the first stock to it. And then we were using this system called ice filtration which is another, another, another fat duck technique uh, developed years ago where uh, I got it from an engineer, German engineering company actually, and they weren't making stock. It wasn't really anything to do with, with gastronomy, but it was the use of gelatine as a sieve. So you'll be thinking, well, how does that work? Yeah. When, if you imagine how does, like, how does gelatine work? So, in animals, all the connective tissue, so think of an oxtail, the stuff that ju goes juicy and sticky, comes from collagen. Now, collagen is, is the, when you have a piece of raw meat, you know you've got, the, you've, got, you've got bone and you've got gristle, but you've got this white stuff that's not fatty and it's not quite grisly. It's the stuff that's hard when it's, when it's raw, and then you cook it for a long time and it goes all soft and gelatinous. So right. what happens there is you're gelatinizing the collagen. Now, the, what the collagen looks like is a barber's pole. You know, the, 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 the red and white spiral or a yeah. string, a rope. So take three pieces of string and then twist them together. They become much tougher, don't they? Yes, you have a rope. Yeah. So when you cook that protein for long enough, that rope, that is called a triple helix. Those three ropes uncoil and separate into single strands of gelatine. So three strands of gelatine wound together make collagen. So you're breaking them back in, into gelatine. Then when they cool down, 
They want to get back into that barber's pole shape, but that's really complicated, so they can't do it. So they end up joining somewhere along each string in threes. So if you can picture it, you end up with a net. And that's not a female, that's not a name of a, a woman, <laughs> name, by the way. <laughs> you end up with a net of strands of jelly. Can, can you picture it? So you, yeah, so you're but I just, the fact you know this stuff is incredible. But yes, yeah, I, I, I can know, picture I, it. I needed need to get out more often. <laughs> so that net then holds on to liquid. And that's how right. you make mousses. It's like a net of a net of gelatine. So when you make a stock, or when you want to make it really clear, like a consomme, what you do traditionally is you put you put more fresh veg and more raw protein into the stock, plus some egg whites and maybe even the shells, and you heat the stock up really gently. This is very classical cooking. This technique, very gradually, and all the impurities in the stock get caught up by this net of forming gelatine. And they rise to the surface, and then you then you strain the, the the liquid off, and leave that net behind. You don't use it, so you have a really wonderfully clear stock, but you always lose some flavour. So this way, what you do is when you know when you leave a stock to go cold, if you've got enough meat and you've cooked it for long enough, it goes to jelly. Yeah. So you get that jellied block of stock, and you put it in the freezer. Then right. when it's frozen, you take it out of the freezer. You can bash it up a bit if you want, but you put it in a sieve. You can line the sieve with something like a J-cloth or a muslin and you let it defrost in the fridge. And what happens is the, the water part of the stock defrosts quicker than the gelatine. So you've actually created like a very fine, efficient muslin cloth out of gelatine strands. Yeah. So it's like a self, it's like a self-made um inbuilt sieve so you end up with this beautifully clear liquid that looks as clear as tea like a black tea an incredibly with, strong flavor. yeah with almost concentrated flavor it's incredible so we use that ice filtration to make to make the stock which becomes the delicate jelly um and then the cream of langoustine so this whole thing was inspired by alan chapelle but then the i i but then came the the quail, the oak, the truffle, the forest, the, the forest and woodland scene, then the oak moss and the and the oak resin. So this this woodland scene with the truffles and the oak and the smell and the damp and the cold and the wonderful perfume fragrance of a you know of a of a, a walk in the woods. So there we've got the main bulk of the quail jelly. And I mentioned that underneath we've got a pea puree. And a bit like the obsessive work I did on tri on uh, with the triple cooked chips. Similar with peas, when he pureed the peas, I wanted the most, the smoothest pea puree that I've ever had. And I found that no matter how much you tried to blitz a puree the peas, the skins didn't break down. Now, when you have a whole pea, it's actually a pleasing a textural change because you put the pea in your mouth and it bursts because the outside casing is 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 fairly tough a bit like a tomato skin the tomato if you if you cook tomatoes in a per hot dish and you don't take the skins off the skins don't break down they don't have any flavor and they don't break down now that you might not be bothered that's fine but if you want to make it with a little more finesse then it's it's, it's better to take the skins out so i was thinking at one point, we did start peeling peas. And, <laughs> did and you I do think, that? Were yeah. you there peeling peas? Yeah. How do you even do that? Well, you have to slowly. by hand. Probably... Yeah, but slowly, slowly. 
in the end, we found a way. We use um, bird's eye frozen peas, which might sound a bit surprising. Now, if you can pick a fresh pea from the pod and eat it within a couple of hours, they're things of beauty. Mm. Otherwise, very quickly, what happens is the sugars, the, the, the sugars break down into starches, so the peas become less sweet and more pasty. So I should be a walking uh, advert for bird's eye, but I'm not. But they developed a technique years ago to pick and freeze the peas within minutes of picking them. So they, they keep all the sugars in. So it's an interesting point that actually frozen depends on what you call fresh. If that, that, pea, that pea's denaturing or the breaking down of the pea after picking, if that's been slowed down or almost stopped by freezing, then the pea is in a fresher condition. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you tend, you know, I know that the, the frozen companies, who we don't have a time, but we should by the, by the sound of it. Yeah. Um, they, they tend to push that this is a fresher way of doing it, but you don't think of it, do you? You think of a bag of frozen peas to somehow be older and more uh, not as fresh. Yeah, it, it, and if you look at fish, the most expensive fish in the world by miles is the Japanese tuna that sometimes goes for, I don't know, one fish and go for a couple of hundred thousand pounds. But those fish, after they're caught, are frozen at minus 80 degrees on the boat. And that keeps the fish fresh because it doesn't start to decompose. Fish live, those fish live in much colder waters than your fridge. So even by putting it in the fridge, it's still decomposing. It's breaking mm. down. Whereas if you freeze it at minus 80, you, you just, and the ice crystals stay small when they're frozen at that temperature. So the pea is actually fresher. So how but did it you help did... you, though, having a fresher one? Did the, did the shell come off easier? No. What, what we found, which was actually thanks to the fact they were frozen, if we let them defrost really gently, um, not, not room temperature, but speed, sped them up a bit by putting them under the lights. You know, the, it's called the pass, where you, where you send the food out from the kitchen. Those lights are hot. They're like hot lights. So you put them under there, and that's just enough. That 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 rate of change of temperature is enough for the skins, to, to, well, to, skins to come off. But you don't need to peel them. You then push them by hand through a sieve with a scraper. You don't blitz them because if you blitz them, you break all the skins up, and then you can't pick them out again. So you push them through, and if the if the sieve is of the right, the whole size of the sieve, the mesh size, is of the right size you end up pushing the inside of the pea, which is naturally pureed, through the sieve, and you leave all the skins behind. But it did take rather a long time. And unfortunately, if anyone ever questions the level of attention to detail that goes into I know, into and somebody dishes. could say, who would know the difference? You would. M me. That's it. I've, 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 I've been in your lab many times over, and you are the ultimate litmus test of... No, it can get better. No, it can get. I've seen 10, 15 chefs all staring and go, please say, please say this is enough. And you just, you see, you have this thing where you go, I think we can make that better. And it's like, God. But I it know. does Do make you know, a difference, I, you know, all this, some of the parts. I, I think I've been a massive uh, people pleaser in my life in, in so many areas. I don't want to upset them, but also I don't want people to think, didn't want people to think less of me. That this is, you know, this, but I tended to edit that bit out and not realise it. The one area of my life where I just was focused, the product, the belief in the product became stronger 
than not wanting to upset people because I know you know if, if we've been working so hard on something and it's not if it if it's not I say not good enough it's you know what I have in my mind trying to get to something I had in my mind if it's not there yet I wouldn't let that get in the way it was probably the only part of my life where I did that uh, and eventually I used to be I used to learn from that there was a lot it takes a lot of nerve to stand there when everyone there is willing you to say it's fine. It's a, you know that thing, it'll do, it's good enough. Yes. You just never, ever said that. And yeah. that was really remarkable because it does take some stoicism, some incredible professionalism, but also determination to stand there with 10 eyes on you to go, no, yeah. and again, it's when, it sounds easy, when, but it's not. When good just isn't good enough. And you know there's a, there's a saying, a sentence, a phrase in the hindsight, which is... I've, the Mission Star pub we have in Bray. And it's in gold leaf above the fireplace. And it's been there for 300, 400 years. And I've walked past it thousands of times. And I only recently, a year or so ago, a year or two ago, did I realise how powerful this sentence was, this phrase, this quote. I don't know who wrote it, but it's been there for a long time. And it says, fear knocked on the door, faith answered, and no one was there. So you can apply that to the humble P. If it wasn't good enough, my fear of being rejected, my fear of what people think of me being a hard taskmaster, wasn't the driving force because my belief became stronger than my fear. Very nice. And that That's bombshell. great. Ooh, on that <laughs> well, we are running out of time, so we need to finish this dish off so that we can fully eat it with our ears. So we have we have the dry ice wisping over the table, smelling of the forest. We've had yes. our, our, our strip in our mouth, which has dissolved into the taste of, of oak and, and, and the forest floor. And then obviously we've got our, our gel and our jelly now, which has yeah. all these incredible flavours and the amazingly obsessive compulsive pea puree in there. What yes. other aspects are left to fit into this dish? Well, you've got the, the chicken liver mousse, <clears throat> which is, which was the precursor to the meat fruit at dinner, which I think became the most photographed, the single most photographed dish ever on the web. And that meat fruit, that parfait in the middle of the meat fruit was an offspring of this little, little teaspoon-shaped um, uh, rocher of the chicken liver parfait on top of the quail jelly and the cream of langoustine is actually more the cream of langoustine is really more of the nod to Chappelle plus the mixture of those ingredients just eats so deliciously what do you feel when you when you've eaten that dish and you look at the journey you've taken to make it how does that dish make you feel when you look at it now in its completed or its, its evolved form um, a good question, which I don't quite know how to answer because it depends on the context of which I'm eating it. You know, I might say, because one of the beauties of life, I think, I think more people should become aware of how beautiful life can be, is that we change. So all the cells in our body change every eight years. Uh, our microbes change almost weekly. Um our thoughts, our emotions, our memory changes. Um, so we can continually have the potential of having a different perspective with everything that we interact with, including what we eat. So I'll give you an example. I, the classic kind of chef's seasoning, let's say, was salt and pepper. 
They'd always think about how about particularly salt. Then I started years ago, I started realizing the importance of acidity, as we heard last week, for generating, you know, saliva, mouth-watering, waking the mouth up. It, <clears throat> it's really important to have that to have that moisture when you eat. It's the opposite of you know eating really dry food, which most people would prefer not to eat, you know, whether it's fish or chicken, for example, they prefer that it wasn't too dry. And so that was acidity. Then I moved on from there to the importance of bitterness. Um, how do you add acidity without too much flavour? So lemon juice is what a lot of people think. However, lemon is very impacted flavour-wise, which you might want. But if you want to add acidity without too much flavour or aroma, then plain white wine vinegar works, works well. The bitterness, how do you add bitterness? Okay, you can put coffee in it, but then it's going to taste a coffee, which might work for a dish, but actually, if you just want bitterness, you see the difference? Bitterness is a taste. Coffee has loads of flavours with it. So we found various techniques. You can, you can use a little bit of pith from oranges or grapefruit slightly dried, uh, but that still has a little bit of the flavour, or green peppers. Green pepper juice has a bit, and, and some other vegetable-based things have, have especially on, the, on the, uh, the skins of the vegetables, have more bitter notes. So you can infuse with that just to add a little bit of bitterness, which, which in like red wine is really important. Tannins, bit, tannins are a bit like, a bit like a bitter taste. So that gives you structure to the dish. So if I tasted this dish where before I discovered the importance of acidity, I wouldn't be looking for the acidity. After I discovered the importance of acidity, I'd be thinking, oh, it needs more, needs more acidity. Then after I discovered the bitterness, oh, it needs more bitterness. So it's a, it's a hard thing. It depends on my perspective. That's the thing. And it sound, that sounds like a politician's answer, diverting the no, question. No, but it's a perfect example of how when you eat your food, you're still searching for something new in it. And I will do for the rest of my life. Yeah, and, and the joy of these dishes is there's so much depth to them. There's so much variety within them and so many memories that are evoked and so many senses that are awakened that you, when you're eating them, you are doing that. It does poke you in places you've not been poked before in your mind and in your mouth and in your body. And that's the the joy of them and the complexity of them and it took me a while to get my head around it when i've you know tried them before yeah. and the chefs have let me experience them but i think it's that thing where every time you try them they they take you in a slightly different way and as you've always said how you interpret that is a perfectly personal experience yeah and, and also i know i've said it before but just to reiterate flavor perception is the most complex thing the human body does by far more chromosomes involved in it than anything else because we have to eat to survive. After breathing and drinking, eating is the next most important thing along with sleeping. Before we can get on with life, you know, we can survive, I don't know, a couple of weeks without food and without sleep. Otherwise, you know, so we need to do that. So the senses are basically gatekeepers for the mouth because what we eat, especially much less so now, but you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, you pick up a mushroom, it could kill you. So you have, to, you have to be really kind of on it to be aware of if you can eat something or not for, for survival. So our senses, we see it first, then we hear it, then we smell it, then we touch it, and we decide, okay, we're going to eat it. But you, there's too much going on for the brain or for us to be aware of every single thing. So if you eat, if the evolution of a dish, you continue to eat and evolve, you evolve, or I've evolved with those dishes, 
I've evolved, the dish has evolved, I've changed, my perspective's changed, I might tweak the dish continually. So this, again, just like the trees and us, is a sort of symbiotic relationship. And that is where we shall leave our fat duck dining experience for today. Heston, thank you for another incredible course of food. It was a brilliant deep dive into that. Next week, we're carrying on with our series of specials about the fat duck's past and present and future menu. And we are, believe, going into the realms of crab ice cream. So do tune in for that one but for now Heston thank you ever so much for letting me inside all of your thoughts and throw the development process your inspiration and the stories behind your things all that's left to say this week is goodbye Heston thank you Jay and goodbye Jay <laughs>